Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm talking with Ange Hander, who is founder of Inspiring Women Changemakers. She's also chair of Freedom Studios, which is an arts organisation based in Bradford. And she's a governor at Leeds Arts University as well. So I saw Ange speak at the IOF Yorkshire Conference back in May. She was speaking about this incredible campaign that she ran really on behalf of somebody who became her friend, Afisat Saliu, and her two daughters who were trying to stay in the UK because there was a real concern about them returning to their native country due to worries about female genital mutilation. So we talk about that campaign in here and we also talk about diversity, lived experience, I learn what passing is and another thing that Ange mentions is this Japanese formula for happiness called Ikigai which uh, I think we should all get involved in that as well. I hope you enjoy listening, if you do please rate it on iTunes, thanks very much. Welcome back to Cracking Charity Chats. This is episode number 11, which means we're firmly into double numbers, which feels really good. And today I'm joined by Ange Hander. Ange, do you want to start by giving us a bit of background about yourself and your various different roles, which I found when I was putting the brief together. I was like, I'm just going to be 20 minutes. And I was like, oh my God, she does this. And she's chair of this. <laughs> she's involved with this. So yeah, easier if you go through all that. Sure. Primarily, I am the founder of Inspiring women change makers which is a global movement of women that are looking to uplift other women in terms of their lives their health and well-being and their work opportunities we do that in various ways so we have members who connect through the platform and collaborate on certain issues so for example there's a small group of members that are working on coercive control and domestic abuse then we have another group of members that are looking at special educational needs and disability. So the real emphasis of our work is um, about health and work outcomes and improving those for people all around the world. We know that the, um, women are disadvantaged in terms of education, finance and health and jobs and pay opportunities globally even in the UK and even at the most senior levels, we see a disparity mm. and that's what Inspiring Women Changemakers is set up to address in a very positive way. The two of the roles that I do on a non-exec basis are that I'm chair of Freedom Studios. It's an Arts Council England national portfolio organisation, which essentially means that we have core funding for a certain amount of years and put on productions in non-traditional theatre spaces and the focus of our work is on people from minority backgrounds, ethnic minority backgrounds but also working class as well and we deliver our productions in places that you might not expect so at the moment we've got a black teeth and a brilliant smile which is based on an adaptation of Adele Stripes book that has just been sold out, we've had fantastic reviews all over the place and I feel so proud to be chair after coming in a couple of years ago and really turning the the board around and our direction of work. It's also great that we have two female co-artistic directors who job chef and I'm also the uh, governor at Leeds Arts University. I came on five years ago when the university was still Leeds College of Art and was looking at top degree awarding powers. So working through the whole process of 
getting that title and becoming a university and um, a, a £14 million credit agreement around the new building that we've got that is super fancy and is based in the heart of Leeds. And again, I'm, I'm so proud because I love the arts and um, that creative side is very much in line with, with me and the things that I enjoy doing. So it just involved in so much stuff. And I think what's really interesting as well, as we were talking about before we press record, about is working across various different sectors. I suppose I've had three blocks in terms of my career. So when I graduated, I, I speak fluent German, I speak several languages, but um, the first part of my career was working between London and mostly Frankfurt, but around Germany, working in the IT sector. Then I returned from London in 2003 after a series of quite traumatic life events and I wasn't very well. So I cho chose to move back to, to the North. Best decision I, I made, I think. But when I came back, I thought, what do I want to do? And I, if I'm honest, I wasn't sure. So initially I was brought on as a, a consultant, a freelance consultant doing uh, a research piece of work, a feasibility study on the IT sector and getting more people from disadvantaged um, backgrounds into IT careers through a, a funded programme and it was actually a, a pilot devised by Gordon Brown. The feasibility study for Leeds and for South Yorkshire was successful. I managed that and then a few months into that role as um, IT sector manager, I was asked to apply for a director role and um, that was part of the National Employment Panel. So it was set up by Tony Blair originally as the New Deal Task Force. My remit with my team was to create sector and thematic groups around diversity and flexible working again to provide better jobs and skills opportunities for people uh, so by the time i left in 2011 i had about 700 odd employers from the public private and voluntary and community wow. sectors in in my role and some of those groups are still going so the diversity forum is still going despite that the the funding being removed in 2011 it's led by yorkshire water so Fantastic. my re real experience is creating these strong, effective partnerships that have a clear remit and mobilise people. Mm. So one of the things I want to talk to you about is the amazing campaign that you spoke about at Institute of Fundraising Yorkshire. So the background being that this lady, Afasat, basically fear of returning to her native country because of female genital mutilation. The risk for her two daughters. Yeah. So... Um, I don't think I touched on this anywhere in my IOF talk, but I, I lost a friend to suicide in 2012 and it was actually the second friend that I'd lost. And so it, it was actually, if I go back, it wasn't really the Change.org campaign that was the big life changer. It was that. Mm. Um, because he was someone very sporty, very handsome, professional, loved, um, on the surface, no apparent reasons for why he chose to take his life but it set me off from something bad something good has to come out and it set me off on a journey of um self-discovery I know that sounds really cliched but it was I was I'd always worked in quite senior roles so I must say I was not not overtly materialistic but life certainly involved around posh suit shoes and handbags and it is quite the reverse now mm -hmm. I had to dig deep when when he died because I, I was just in such a dark place. I had a few bereavements after that. 
And so the stuff that is now in my coaching is the best of the best of what I learned when I went through this. Mm. I, I hired coaches, I went on workshops, I read so much. But it was a tool, and this is something I teach on my uh, Changemaker residentials, or rather take people through, it's called Ikigai, and it's a Japanese model, which is where your passion, your profession, your mission, and your vocation intersect. So it's like the sweet spot of what you're put on on this earth to do. And um, Mm -hmm. in mine was women and girls, but then it was asylum-seeking women and girls. And when I dug a bit deeper, it was female genital mutilation. I'd read this book called Desert Flower by Waris Dury, and she's actually the UN ambassador for female genital mutilation. She was a supermodel. She was in James Bond films, and she herself had undergone it and fled a forced marriage. She, they were trying to force her into marriage when I think she was about 12. Fled across the desert, ended up in London, was spotted by a model agency, changed her life, wrote this book. And it moved me in a way that I can't explain. And it must have planted some kind of seed. So when I'd done Ikigai and discovered it was this, by almost sheer coincidence, there was a documentary on Channel 4 called The Cruel Cut. And um, Mm. there was a barrister on there. There were a couple of high-profile campaigners, Leila Hussein and Ali, who have just received OBEs in the Queen's Honours and whom I now know personally. But um, with I, I followed them and I followed Felicity Gary because she's uh, an international human rights barrister and she'd said something that stunned me but was, I, I believe, to be true. She said, if this were blonde hair, blue-eyed girls, we wouldn't be having this debate. And just because things are going on under skirts, imagine how it would be if we said, oh, it's okay, it's culture to chop somebody's arm off. Mm. How is this any different? You know, it's, yeah. it's actually worse and it's a lifelong legacy. That documentary impacted me so much, I pretty much forced my friends to watch it. I told them it was disturbing, but I got them to watch it. And one of those friends is my very good friend, Priya and um, Babra, who works for the council and runs the Needs Migrant Access Project. She said, I've met this woman and she needs a befriender. She's suffering from mental health issues. She's going through the asylum seeking process. She's had FGM. She was giving a talk to midwives and I heard her there. So um, a little bit of time passed. It was Christmas. So we met in the January and our bond was pretty much instant when we met. She told me her story and the two girls were just adorable. They were two and four at the time. Complete trust. One of them sat on my knee. The other one was a toddler. So she was tugging at my leg. And I thought, I cannot let anything happen to these little girls. And she said, I've just got um, legal aid. I've got a, a lawyer here in Leeds. But she said, can you come to my home office visit with me? They're coming to see me and I'd love your support. So I said, I need to ask permission from your lawyer. Emailed him and he dumped her the next day. Oh, yeah. Oh, so oh, I, I went Why is that? Because it, essentially... I he doesn't have capacity were, and he thought no, that she had support? Or? I, I think what happened there was he probably thought she has some support and the way it is with the payments, as far as I am aware, they get an upfront payment and it's not very much anyway, so he probably thought this is more hassle than it's worth. So he just told her he wasn't going to do it. So um, I won't swear on camera, but I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I tweeted Felicity, the barrister from the documentary, and said, 
this is the situation, can you mm. help? And so we Skyped and I didn't realise that she lived in Australia. But um, in pure universe synchronicity, she said, I've never been to Leeds. I'm actually coming to Leeds on the Friday. This was the Wednesday when I tweeted her, which was the day after the home office visit. So she briefed me on what we needed to do, what we needed to uh, cover with them. And the next day she landed in Leeds. I met her at the courts, carried her wig and her gown to the Chamber of Commerce where I used to work, <laughs> printed off some documents and she took her on as a pro bono client. It spiralled from there, to be honest. It was all very, very quick in terms of process because uh, she was able to bring in a European human rights lawyer and then partly because of her profile, but also through... Um, my social media profile, another small law firm owner got involved and said, we will look after this from the UK side. So there was a pro bono team working essentially for about five or so months free. Amazing. Paid for that. Amazing. It was incredible. But it still looked, by, by the time it was the Easter bank holiday, so we're talking mid-January to Easter, it looked like they were hell-bent now on deporting her because we, we were too troublesome, frankly, mm. and they wanted to make an example of her. This is firmly what I believe. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I thought, I'm going to do a change.org campaign just to raise some awareness of the thing and show her that she is loved and that people are bothered, um, even if she is deported. And it, I, I really didn't expect that many people to sign it. But... Um, it got 126,500 signatures. It had a clear political message and call to action. Um, I had media engagement and my ask was very specific. Yeah. So there were some things that meant that change.org escalated that. And so it, it gets seen by more people. So it wasn't that I personally emailed 126,500 people. It, it, it got amped up through yeah. the yeah. campaign software. But the knowledge and the lessons I can pass on, you know, for that is because it's almost, and papers are the same, they're like a, a David and Goliath kind of angle, they're like mm. the human interest. And because I focused it on a family, there was a personality and, the, you know, there were these two gorgeous kids who spoke with Yorkshire accents, Afrasat was articulate, so it broke down a lot of the public perception of uh, refugees and asylum seekers, which mm. is often quite negative mostly because they're dehumanised by the media. Yeah, absolutely. And I knew that, so I turned it on its head. I know what a good story looks like. Mm. What a lot of people weren't aware of was I spoke to Nick Clegg on LBC. LBC were initially very supportive until they put me on with Julie Hartley Brewer, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and so him and his team were working with me behind the scenes. Mm. And another learning is, and I say this to charities when I'm working with them, don't directly slay an individual. You can critique systems and processes and policies and practices, but don't attack people directly mm -hmm. because that will upend what, what it is you're trying to do. And so this teaching that I give through my workshops about emotional correctness is super important. It's mm. um, make sure that you are being decent and straightforward and presenting the facts. You can use emotion without being emotive. Mm, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was talking about my affection for the family and why this was wrong as a practice. 
and why the asylum system was so complicated, but I wasn't directly slating Theresa May, um, mm. who, you know, whose remit it was at the time, or James Brokenchair, or standing with the placard outside the Home Office in Leeds. I wouldn't mm-hmm. do any of that. So it's thinking about how you can make the most impact and influence. And have a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that was an absolutely incredible campaign. It's such a divisive issue, isn't it? Mm. And particularly, you open yourself up to a lot of scrutiny, and not even just scrutiny, just awful people mm. <laughs> with interesting, in inverted commas, um, views. So how did you deal with the haters? Do you know, I don't have that many. And I believe I really, truly believe it's because of the emotional correctness attitude that I have, the approach that I take. And even when I've had people say, what about, you get a lot of what aboutery when you deal with these issues, what about them? And they're normally on two completely separate issues. And I say, well, I, I, I also might have a view on male circumcision, but they're not comparable. And in any case, this is where I am putting my energy. Yeah, and yeah, even yeah. with inspiring women change makers, it's a niche. It's a bit, I have a business, it's just a niche. It's yeah, important yeah. to me, so it's the niche I've chosen. But um, You're not saying it's the only important thing in the world, absolutely yeah? Absolutely not, because we can't do everything and we dilute ourselves if we try. So whether you're an individual, a grassroots organisation or a charity, if you're diluting what you're doing too much, people um, get a bit lost. Mm. And I've seen people do that. They flip one minute to from NHS next to homelessness. All of those things are important in society to be addressed, but let people who are focusing their energy do that and give lend them your support, but have your thing. Mm. And even with Julie Hartley, bro, I'm tongue-in-cheek mention that, because LBC had been so supportive on two of my radio interviews. And then the day she was deported, they said, will you come back on? And I was in trauma, I was so upset. Mm. And they put me on with this hateful journalist. But at the end, it was just so bizarre because she said, well, I must say you were a very good friend. So even her, she was doing her thing for radio to get attention, mm. but she could see that it was truly coming from a place of love. And she could see the human element. So it's interesting that she went sort of full circle yeah. in a way, isn't it? Yeah. So when I was looking at what you did in the campaign that you ran... Um, I'm such a stereotype so I was reading something in the Guardian and I just looked at the comments and I was just like oh so many people come onto this site just to trash people basically how do you deal with people not just that that say like oh what about men's issues they're more important how do you deal with people who just say they're coming to our country taking our jobs and they don't speak English all of that do you just like let it wash over you sometimes you have to do that because there are those people that are just determined to hate however you have to be careful because there are sometimes people who simply do want more information and actually can become your biggest advocate. So mm. you learn how to filter filter those through. And actually, my housemate Liz calls me the troll whisperer because she just they they, they come they, they completely come round. But it's um again not personally attacking them because. I do believe that whether it's face to face or online, hurt people, hurt people. Why do they feel the need to do that? Yeah, yeah. They're not content with their life in some way, or something's yeah. gone wrong. So um, yeah. I just don't attack them. 
So I wanted to talk to you about equality, diversity and inclusion. And I mean, that's a big topic, isn't it? But there's one sort of piece of what you do around being the chair of Freedom Studios. Mm-hmm. So it says that they... Uh, they're about bringing together audiences and communities by creating new work and other opportunities for them to engage with the arts. So, so you're focusing on engagement, yeah, as well as the art being brilliant. But you're focusing on engagement. So, what does that look like in practice? There are a few strands. When you're an arts council England funded organisation, you have certain priorities, and so ours include the the create case for diversity is the overarching one of the overarching goals but then um youth engagement and um digital we um do work in schools so get them to um you know to produce theatre like to produce art but we also and this is something i'm very proud of we have a youth board now so we actually have a youth board who (laughs) very cute they interviewed me and we did a, a Skype call and they interviewed me and then they made a little video and um, they range in age. So they, they're up to about 18 and they can be mm. younger. And me on a Saturday, we also um, host the Refugee Choir as well. And the Refugee Choir uh, were part of our um, Ice Cream Opera production, which was two ice cream fans, a bit like Romeo and Juliet. So there was... Um, Indian one and Italian one and that was within the whole Bradford festival on on the city park in Bradford we had two ice cream vans and did the opera and it's so rare to get um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds who can actually sing opera and then we have the Mm. refugee choir supporting it but you can imagine given its central Bradford location how many people got to experience our art yeah Um, so we did that um, we so you've have, taken it out a lot as opposed out. to we build it and have, they will come. We, we, we're not, um, we, we don't have our own theatre space. We, okay. We're based in Colossangham in Bradford, which does have space. We recently moved into there, but we're not like a West Yorkshire Playhouse. Something yeah. like Northern Ballet doesn't have its own okay. Okay. Um, space. We did a thing called um, North Country, which was about, it was like the apocalypse and it was kind of three tribes and how they were dealing kind of with the end of the world type scenario. But that was done in an old space where the audience sat on hay bales and were given old handsets. But then the digital bit came in to take that even wider was um, we were the first arts organisation to completely live cast the production. So it was adapted um, and delivered on Facebook Live. Cool. Yeah, really cool. Shortly after that, so end of last year, we did um, When We Were Brothers, and it was written by Ben Tago, who writes for Corrie, and um, it was about a mixed-race friendship, but suicide and men- male mental health, and that w- that was set in um, a pub we used, the Underground in Bradford, and then it toured. And now we have... Um, Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile that's just finished in Bradford and now it's touring and again that was in a pub setting because it was very much about um, Andrea Dunbar and you know working class and how she she did have a tendency to drink let's say um, and and so again quite grungy settings and yeah. they're 
they will appeal to some parts of the community that would um, typically not go to a theatre. Yeah, absolutely. But then we have to be mindful of other communities and young people, so mix up where we're delivering those yeah. things. And that this is something that I'd say about inclusion in general. You can't rely on people coming to you. You can advertise mm. and you can do all the promotion, but you have to make the effort to yeah. go out. And even with my own inspiring women change makers events and, and the awards that I deliver every year it's going to be the third year this year last year you know people in dungarees and cocktail dresses had care leavers migrant women and women from corporates some men as well but you know constantly engaging with different groups and yeah consciously it doing consciously, it yeah it comes to go well that's Part of me, you know, where I grew up, I, I went to school around here in North Leeds and very mixed school, very diverse. My friends in, even in sixth form were Kenyan origin, English, Chinese, Pac British Pakistani, British Indian. And that was really natural for us. Mm. Even at middle school, I had friends who were Jehovah's Witnesses. I live in a very Jewish area. And my parents had clothes shops and two of those were in Leeds, Leeds Kirkgate Market. Mm. So... I grew up around a whole mix of people from all different backgrounds and come from a, a fairly comfortable background myself. So I'm used to mingling in lots of different circles. And in, in one sense, I actually think my um, my heritage is an advantage yeah. in that way yeah. because it means I can really um, traverse different parts of society that some other people can't. So, for mm. example, with Aphazat, because of our affection and our trust, I was invited to lots of asylum seekers' houses and virtually nobody else would be because if you look like you're slightly in authority in some way, the doors kept locked because they're so scared. Mm. I think there's there's obviously an authority thing there as well, but I guess from the, from the other side, so I grew up in Selby, just down the road, there was one black kid in my what I call high school like I'm from yeah. America or something secondary school yeah. to other people it means that I don't feel qualified to talk about diversity in a in terms of race in any way mm. it terrifies me because mm. I just don't feel like authentic well and I have a mixed race niece now and I'm like incredibly protective yeah. of her and like the awful things that she's had actually since since yeah. being at primary school you know, people commenting on her skin colour and you're not allowed to play with us because you're, yeah. you're black and things like that. And you just think, what? Yeah, like, how, how does this happen? But, you know, I, I sit here as a British Indian woman. I don't speak on behalf of all British Asian women. I'm really? so different even to my sisters, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I've of got course, four big yeah. sisters. And so there are generational things and life experience things. We, yeah. we have to meet people just on a human kindness level, that's mm. all it is mm. to me. And making sure that various parts of society have, are present, that they are welcome, feel safe and welcome. And I, I, I think that's how I'm able to get such a good mix of people around because I go, come on in, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to an event a, a couple of weeks ago, the Brexit Civil Society Alliance has been doing events in various cities around the country and they did one in Sheffield a couple of weeks ago. And one of the key speakers was a Muslim lady and she stood up and said, people basically see me as a diversity tick box. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I thought, oh my God, that's really depressing. Yeah. Really depressing. It happens. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about lived experience because when, when you've talked about 
diversity you talked about your housemate being a paralympian you talked about your friend who got friends who commit suicide you talked about mental health you talked about gender stuff and then being british indian came about like what six or seventh down the list yeah so which is devastating because of all yeah. the other things but yeah. also brilliant that that's not yeah. the first thing in terms of how you think about diversity and equality yeah. my key focus is that i want people to be happy healthy and well I think a lot of society's problems come from that place when they're not mm. well. As I said earlier, I'm lucky that I've I've had contact with so many people of different, even in my friendship circles, the age diversity. It's not mm. just about physical or mental, you know, neurodiversity, which I also have in my family and in my friendships. I've got one of my closest friends um, has Asperger's. Um, you know, a nephew too. We've all got this lived experience, mm. and we don't need to label ourselves by it. It's kind of incidental, yeah. That it it happens that I was born into a an Indian family, and I was born mm. in the UK. I could have been born somewhere else. Would I have been different? Maybe I don't know. Mm. Um, our situations can always change for better or for worse. And as you said, you went to university; it broadened your outlook. And so, if people are ready and willing to change and be more um, wholehearted and inclusive they can be. So how do we go about identifying and recognising lived experience? It was the Institute of Fundraising National Convention last week, mm. which was amazing. Yeah. And there were a load of volunteers and somebody had tweeted a picture of the volunteers and I think somebody had said, oh, they look, I'm paraphrasing massively mm. here, somebody said, oh, they look very white. And one of the volunteers had said, this is the most diverse range of people that I've ever like worked alongside because they ha there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm so worried about even engaging in any debate around diversity, yeah. equality, yeah. inclusion. If I think about my own experience, like, like growing up, basically my mum married a violent alcoholic when yeah. I was six yeah. and divorced him when I was 23. Like lots of very complex things there. Yeah. Like, but I think when people look at me now, you know, I buy a few things from John Lewis. I'm, but I, I tick that middle class white yeah, girl yeah. box, don't and, I? But I think this is the thing. Like, there's a lot of shit going on in in everybody's life. lives. In everybody's exactly. Life. I think there also should be the recognition that people have stuff going on under the surface that you can't see, but it's not an excuse at the same time because the, the fact is people of colour and I, I, I can never find the right word for it because that sounds very American to me yeah um, people like me who have a bit more melanin um, are, are not very visible in places mm. and spaces nor are people with physical disability it's easier and this is something that Liz and I talk about there's a thing called passing which I I had done when I was younger and wasn't aware of it, but it's a common term in the disability space. So she's Australian, um, was a teenager, self-conscious like any teenage girl was. So she has the prosthetic leg and she's missing an arm. There was not much she could do to hide the arm, but she would wear jeans even in hot Australian summers. Mm -hmm. And that is passing as an able-bodied person. Um, the way it manifests in people like me, and I'm sure I did it when I was younger, I, I don't know, is, um, Try, try to really validate yourself or you know give that get that external validation by 
um, stating your qualifications or your experience up front, rather, so it's, a, it's an exhausting effort. And this is something that I want people who don't experience those things to know is it's exhausting waking up every day. And black friends have said the same. One, Khadija Ibrahim, who's a, a quite well-known spoken word poet, um, we did a, an event at Leeds Beckett recently, and I was the chair of that conference. It was called Disorienting Rays. And she said, when I wake up in the morning, I have got to decide that morning how I'm going to respond if somebody touches my hair. Mm. As a white woman or even as an Asian woman, would anyone dream of coming up and touching our hair? And yet there's this, oh, I want to touch your braids or want to, oh, it feels softer. It, what an invasion of someone's yeah. personal space. So there are things that we are constantly having to think about and modify in our day-to-day -day lives that somebody who looks like you wouldn't. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's um, that's my what I would say when it comes to that. So internally, I have these choices to make about um, whether I'm going to go through life with a chip on my shoulder or whether I'm going to educate and raise awareness of some of these things in the way that I'm doing now on this podcast with you and in some of the talks that I give, because I am more comfortable about using my voice and I'm able to do mm -hmm. it in a way that can be a bit challenging, but it's not confrontational at the same time. Mm -hmm. I want to ask something that feels really topical in the charity sector at the moment, which is there have been two significant appointments which have gone to white men. One yes, is the, the diversity role at IOF yeah. and NCVO. And that their names have been banded about on Twitter and there have been suggestions in some cases that white men should step aside. I feel like how are we going to engage like white men in a debate about equality if we are having a think about this? And yeah. also what I would what I find quite interesting, I mean that's a diplomatic way of putting it. I'm like mildly furious about all of this, I have yeah. to say. Um that's so British, I'm mildly furious. <laughs> You're either furious or you I am furious, <laughs> but I'm trying not to rant and swear okay. <laughs> for my own um, career protection. <laughs> so Oxfam's had a really difficult time over the past mm -hmm. few years, had a lot of scrutiny. I don't recall, and I had a quick Google of this, anybody scrutinising the recruitment process of their chief exec, mm. who is, I believe... Uh, was born in Sri Lanka and grew up like with yeah. the running water and stuff like this. And I, I saw him speak at NCVO's annual conference yeah. and I was like, this guy is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But are we, as a sector, are we just like, that's great because they've appointed yeah. somebody from that was born in Sri Lanka. So like, we're cool yeah. with that, but actually we're going to challenge this over here because they're white. And yeah. like, what's your credibility? What's the recruitment process? It's so tricky because I saw that with also some discomfort, I have to say, because I thought, how must he feel? You know, and again, it's, not, it's about critiquing systems and processes. But I think as long as boards, and I say this because I, I, I'm vice chair of the search and selection committee at, at Leeds Arts University, you know, that's a publicly mm. a public role. Um, and so we have this debate all the time. And I think all you can do as organisations is to ensure that you remove as much bias as possible as you can from the recruitment process, do as much um, 
outreach as you can, like for example, there's women on boards and there's some other things, some personal contact, but ensuring that your, your process is transparent and that it is open to all and that there's no um, backdoor kind yeah. of, you know, pre preferences. And as long as those are satisfied, that should be okay. But saying that, it's also, if you really want a, a more diverse makeup at senior level, which is where it always suffers, but mm -hmm. even at the Institute Fundraising, I was the only brown person there. Yeah. Um, and that was through personal connection. Would I had the opportunity otherwise I'm not sure I would mm. I've got a blog about how to be inclusive even when you have zero budget and that's tongue-in-cheek it was just designed to draw people in yeah but um I quote a woman called um Famira Green she's from the states and she says it starts with you and your friendship circles and that's true if you've got broad networks yourself and those ripple mm. out organisationally as well you know if you've got a say within your organisation and there were quite a few of you with broad networks that's where the diversity and inclusion starts mm. to happen isn't it you know yeah. because yeah. um i know a heck of a lot of people from all sorts of backgrounds and if other people are extending their networks then you have a, a broader pool to mm. approach and to recruit from or to get their input into things but if you're only networking within a small pool that looks like you, yeah. that's not yeah. ideal. It would be exactly the same for me as Chair of Freedom Studios, just to go, oh, right, I'm just going to go out to the British Indian community, mm. or even more specifically, British Hindu mm. community. You know, no, I can't do that, and yeah. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my final question is, is there a book, person or ethos that has inspired your work? Yeah, um, Brené Brown, who is has one of the most popular TED Talks ever. Okay. You can look those up. She's a professor and she writes about vulnerability and shame. She does work globally. She's worked with the likes of Pixar um, and others, going out and doing her... Um, program so it was her I think it's the second book Daring Greatly and it, it was all about it's a fascinating book because it's based on her research and that's very much my style evidence-based it's about the story but with the evidence yeah like yeah um about the different way vulnerability and shame shows up for men and for women typically because it's a bit different yeah. and when I read that book I thought what is the most vulnerable thing that I can do and at the time so it was after my friend's suicide I thought it's blogging because I want to blog about some quite personal things and the shame would come in of my family reading some of those yeah parents just didn't want and guess they don't read it they barely even read my Facebook <laughs> post so you know it, it, it was yeah. it was an ill-founded fear but it was her book that essentially got me to set up a blog and it was from the blog that I used um, that to, to disseminate information about the campaign, the Change the mm. campaign. And then it hosted my trial page for Inspiring Women Changemakers. So I launched Inspiring Women Changemakers with corporate patron support from a free WordPress site. Mm. Didn't look great, you know, but it was enough. And yeah, yeah. So it was that that got me over myself when it came to vulnerability and shame. And now I talk to anyone about anything, really. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. But as, 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 as do I, it, it would appear. Yeah. yeah. Um, brilliant. Okay. Thank you so much for That's your so time. Great. It's been amazing.
So here are my learnings from my chat with Ange. The first one is about critiquing structures, systems and processes as opposed to people. And I think the example that she gave of home office policy as opposed to attacking Theresa May is a really good one and something that we should all keep in mind. The second thing is around not feeding the trolls. And we didn't really go into this because Ange seems really good at not feeding the trolls. But my point here really is about not taking to heart things that are said about the cause that you're working for. So for example, Ange was talking about whataboutery. We get a lot of whataboutery talking about women's issues, for example. And I think she was really clear in saying, do you know what? It's just a niche that I've chosen. You know, it doesn't make anything else less important. It's just that this is my thing. I think that's really good to consider if like me, you sometimes take things to heart a little bit too much. The third thing is this Japanese model for happiness called Ikigai, which um, I think for some of us in the charity sector, we work here because we are very passionate about making the world a better place, but perhaps we don't have a specific area of focus necessarily. Um, I know that I've worked in for various different causes, for example. So I'm going to go and check out Ikigai and see if I can get a bit more clarity. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast and I'll catch you next time. Thanks very much.